I just kept coming back to tooling because I find it to be like the most gratifying thing to work on. A lot of my last job was actually, I didn't really like think about it this way at the time, but it was building like developer tools. I was building tools to enable other people to do great work. That to me is like the most rewarding thing. Hey, before we get started, I'd like to remind you that the full episode is only available to our paid subscribers. The current platforms you can subscribe on are Apple, Spotify, and Patreon. In the full version of this episode, we talk about Charlie's habit of reading open source code to find inspiration, a budding linter community on GitHub, and of course, all of our tooltips for the week. And with that, let's get on to the episode. Hello, welcome to the DevTools FM podcast. This is a podcast about developer tools and the people who make them. I'm Andrew, and this is my co-host, Justin. Hey everyone, uh, today we have Charlie Marsh on with us. Uh, really excited to have you on, Charlie. So Charlie is the creator of Rough, which is a, a really fast uh, Python linter, and we're really excited to dig into that. Uh, also, just I don't know, I I do Rust every day now, so I am really excited to talk to someone else who's like working on a, a, a dense Rust project. Yeah, thanks so much for. Um... Thanks so much for having me on. I, I already said this, but I'm a big fan of the podcast. So being on the podcast, is feels like a big honor for me. Um, and I uh, also love talking about this stuff. So, um, you know, just excited to get into what Ref is, um, how it works, and maybe, uh, you know, hopefully also talk a little bit about sort of like the journey to getting here um, because it's been um, it's been a really fun, I don't know, six-ish months um, and like a lot of stuff has happened and I think I've learned a lot, so hopefully we can get into some of that too. Yeah, that's awesome. Before we dive into the topic, would you like to tell our audience a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a software engineer. Um, I've really been uh, like an IC for um, pretty much my whole career. Um, I, I started my career at a company called Khan Academy, which is an education technology company. Um, and uh, I really kind of like jumped around and worked on a lot of different, um, like technology stacks. Um, so like at Khan Academy, I did like a year, uh, of Android on some of our first Android apps. I worked on our like first, um, iOS apps. Um, and then I did a lot of like web front end, web back end. Um, and then maybe like five ish years ago, I moved to a company called spring discovery, which is an early stage, um, like computational biotech company, which is like a totally new thing for me, I had like no bio background. Um, and I also like, didn't really have like the technical background for what I ended up doing. Like I was building, um, it was all Python. Um, and I was building a data and machine learning, uh, you know, framework. So my users were like eight to 10, like data scientists and machine learning researchers. And I was like building the infrastructure, um, that they used to actually like run experiments and like ask questions about data. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of simultaneously, I was building actual software or software for our scientists. So people who would use like our front end applications to actually like look at the data and try to like an ask and answer questions um, about it that way. So I spent, you know, um, several years basically like jumping between like TensorFlow and then like I'd be doing like React and like, you know, just sort of like jumping all around the stack. Um, and so uh, a lot of my opinions about like tooling and, um, like technology come from, I think, those like influences of like having worked in web, um, having done a bunch of Python now. We also started doing um, a good amount of Rust. Like in my last job, we started moving towards a sort of Rust Python hybrid uh, monorepo. And so um, I try to find the things I like about all those different ecosystems and like pull them together in different ways. Um, and now I'm working on uh, Rough full time. Uh, so I'm building out uh, high performance developer tools. Uh, for the Python ecosystem. That's awesome. So while you were working on those Python things, like, did you feel a need that there, the tools were slow, that the tools did need improvement? And was any of that uh, influenced by what you were seeing going on in the JavaScript ecosystem? Yes, yes, uh, massively. So like a couple things happened. Um, during my time at Spring, which was that the company I was at most recently, um, that kind of like led me to Rough. Like when I built Rough, I was kind of trying to build the thing that I wanted, <laughs> like from my own work. Um, and 
uh, you know, like I said, a couple of things sort of happened at once. So one was um, we had this fairly large Python project um, and uh, I was responsible for um, all the tooling and infrastructure. So, um, you know, I was getting, uh, we had a pretty large, like pretty high, like product slash like infrastructure service area to maintainer ratio. So like, there were kind of like two of us who were really responsible for like all the infrastructure. Um, and, uh, so, um, we relied really heavily on tooling. Um, like we had a lot of like, especially given Python, we had a lot of static tooling. Um, and our code base was like very, very heavily typed. Um, you know, a lot of linters, um, a lot of auto formatting tools. And, um, I, felt this pain point of like the tooling being slow uh, a lot. Um, and it was, it was super, obviously it was super useful and like, there's no way that we could have maintained that code base without all of that tooling, but I felt it slowing me down like all the time. Um, and then I'd be going over to web and I'd be seeing, um, all this tooling that to me felt really like aspirational. I mean, people have a lot of like, a lot of people criticize like web tooling, um, you know, and it has its flaws. Um, but, uh, there's just like, there's so much like really powerful, amazing stuff. And there's just a lot of um, like energy, like in that ecosystem of like people building. It just has this like gravitational pull. It's sucked in all these like, um, I don't know, in my opinion, like really smart people and they all want to like build tooling. Um, and I was like, wow, okay. There's kind of all this amazing stuff going on there. And like one of the threads that they're pulling on is um, writing, writing tools and not JavaScript, right? So hmm. like we had ES build, um, we had SWC, um, and then I was seeing, you know, I was seeing bun, um, and, uh, I was kind of thinking, you know, could you take those same ideas and apply them to Python? And then maybe like the last thing that happened was we started using rust. Um, and so we started moving some of our like performance critical systems into rust and that both gave me some exposure to rust. Um, although I was like, absolutely terrible at it. Um, I was not the person that, that introduced it and I was always trying to get like in and out as quickly as possible. Um, but, but it did sort of expose me to rust. Um, and it also exposed me to this idea of like rust Python interoperability and like the ways that you could use rust, um, like from Python. So like, you know, the fact that we could call out to rust modules from Python and like the people who are writing Python didn't even have to think about that. To me, I was like, whoa, like that's crazy. Um, we can like do all this cool stuff. So all those ideas kind of came together and, and I, you know, I left, I left spring and, um, I was sort of trying to figure out like what to work on. Um, you know, I was like, I think I could have ended up working on like a lot of different things, but I just kept getting sucked back into tools and, um, uh, you know, rough for me, it was like, I have these ideas about how Python tooling could be faster. So let's try to like leverage Rust. Um, uh, I was also influenced, sorry, I should also mention by Rome and like Rome's vision of like unified tooling, not just Rust, but like unified tooling. And so I was looking at all this Python tooling and I was like, can we unify it? Can we use Rust? I mean, you could pick a different language, but could we use a lower level language? Um, and can we just try to build something that's like really, really fast? Um, and I'd never built anything like that before, by the way, I had like no background in building that kind of thing. I like, I'd like worked very minimally with ASTs. Um, and so for me, I was like a linter that looks tractable, um, <laughs> more so, I don't know, like, yeah, okay. There's a lot to it, but I was like a linter, that seems like a feasible thing. Like, I think I can build at least a proof of concept there. Um, and that's what I did. So I, you know, I worked on rough for like a few weeks. And then, um, I kept being like, I don't know, I should, I should stop working on this. Like, this is like just a huge distraction. And then my friend kept being like, no, no, you need to keep working on this. And like, you need to like follow your instincts that like, this is like an interesting thing. Um, and so, um, I really focused on getting it, um, getting it into a state th that I was happy releasing it. Um, like, sort of as quickly as possible. Um, so when, um, when we released it, um, we supported like, I don't know. I don't even know if we supported like 20 rules. Like we supported a very <laughs> small number of rules. And I was like, the thing I want to prove is this point of, I think the tooling could be much faster. And so what are the things we need to do to actually like prove that? Well, 
we need to be able to like parse Python source code. We need to be able to traverse the, the source code. We need to be able to track um, like bindings and do some amount of semantic analysis so that we could detect things like unused imports. Um, so I kind of really focused on like building out, like proving that core idea. Like that, that's like really what I focused on. And I wasn't focused on like, how do I implement all of the rules or whatever else? Um, and that's sort of what, uh, that was like the first release of rough. It was like, I think tooling can be faster. I'm like influenced by these ideas of like, um, write it in a more performant language, um, use rust. It can still be pip installable. No one who installs it has to have rust installed. Like it can feel like a Python dependency. So that's, it can feel like Python is like the one idea it can be written in a faster language is another. Um, and I just bundled those together to try and I guess, prove that point. <laughs> and then, um, more importantly, I guess, see if anyone actually cared. Um, because, uh, I didn't know if anyone would care about a faster linter. Um, and, uh, I don't know if I'd asked people at the time before building rough, if I had asked them, if I had said, do you want a faster linter? I think a lot of people would have said no. Um, I think a lot of people would not have said, have said, yes, this is like the most important thing in my tool chain. <laughs> not that rough is the most important thing in their, in their tool chain. But, um, I, you know, for me, it was about like, prove out the point and see if anyone cares. Um, and tapping into those different ideas is what sort of got me there. Performance is one of those things that it's like, you know, a lot of times this, your thought isn't, oh, I want a performant tool. It's like, oh, the slow tool is like really messing with my workflow. And it's like so frustrating. And, you know, that's such a big point. It, it's really funny. You, there was a lot to unpack from what you said earlier. Yeah, sorry. Like, I just said like a bunch that... of different things. <laughs> all good. All good. No, it was great. Yeah. Love it. Uh, one of the interesting things about the web ecosystem, there's a lot of interesting things about how that's developed, um, is one of the things is people who have like done a lot of development on the web are really, really interested in fast iteration cycles yes. because you can just like run things in the browser and refresh the page and whatever. And getting used to that means that like, oh, you know, I want my tools to be really fast and you know, we went through our slow era for sure when we got into like big uh, build tooling. But another interesting thing about the web ecosystem in my mind is that it pulls all these different people from all these different ecosystems because the web is ubiquitous. You know, it's like, sure, you use JavaScript, but like there's a lot of people who are like they're C programmers or Rust programmers or Java programmers or whatever, but like they all have to come and like do yeah. stuff in this sandbox. Hey, and, we're all trying to build websites, uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. It we, brings a lot of like really interesting ideas from a lot of ecosystems. And I think it's been this like Petri dish for innovation. of just like watching all these things kind of mesh together. We've went from like, you know, really rapid transition from object oriented programming to like functional reactive programming, like, like all these like really interesting explorations. And, um, I don't know, it's all, it's all really cool, but like your, your journey sounds like, you know, it sounds like a, a pretty like graceful path into this sort of world, which is, um, I hope, and I would be really interested to hear your opinion on this. I hope it is actually, it's more approachable now than people think it is because it's like, with rust in particular is like it learning curve for sure. But like, you know, compared to the days of like C plus plus is like, let me build native performant tooling. It's, it's, it's a different ball game. It's yeah. totally different. Yeah. I mean, I, um, let's see, I've written like basically no C plus plus, um, like almost zero. Um, and the only C I've written was in college for like my intro systems course. Um, so I don't come from that school of, of um, not school of thought. I don't come from, that's not my background. Like, um, for sure. and uh, to me, the fact that I can actually like operate in Rust, like I wouldn't say that I'm like, like super good at Rust or anything, but like I am now getting to the point where I'm like, I'm like productive and I can, I, I think I am thinking about problems in like the right way. Um, and like when my code doesn't compile, I can kind of predict that it's not going to compile. And I kind of know why, even if I don't always know like what exactly, how exactly I need to change it. Um, but to me, like writing Rust is like, 
I don't know. It's kind of a superpower. It's like, I don't, um, I would be really scared to go and, and write some like C and C plus plus. And, and some of that I think is, is probably like on me and like, I shouldn't, I probably shouldn't have that opinion of an eco of ecosystems that have been like massively successful or massively popular. A lot of people love working in them, but to me, they just like seem intimidating. Um, you know, take that as you want. Um, and I love working in rust. And so like, um, I don't know, to me, that kind of says a lot about rust. Um, and, a really cool thing that we have seen, um, <laughs> you know, when we released Rough, it's like, and even after Rough became like somewhat popular, we had a lot of people telling us, um, you're never going to be able to find contributors. Like you're never going to be able to like find people to like help you, um, like build the project. Like people won't be able to contribute because it's Rust and like, it's different. It, it was it wasn't about the fact that it was rust but it was about the fact really that it like wasn't python um and um people were like you know you're not gonna be able to like <laughs> you're not gonna be able to find people to work on this and i was like actually first of all we have like a lot of contributors and um also something i'm like really proud of and that i think is really cool is that a lot of our contributors at least they claim that they have not written Rust before. <laughs> um, so they they come in and they're like, hey, I, I work in the Python ecosystem. I'm really interested in learning Rust. Um, I think that we've done a pretty good job of like setting up Rough as, um, you know, an entry point for people who like know Python and, uh, you know, they understand the semantics of Python. They understand the Python AST, even if they haven't worked with ASTs, right? Um, they'll understand the idea of like a function, a class, and a variable, um, but they haven't really written Rust before. And Rough, um, you know, I think I think it's a little bit to do with sort of the modular nature of the project. Like implementing a lint rule is like a pretty um, well-contained thing to do, um, as opposed to having to like um, change a bunch of core infrastructure. So we have a lot of people who haven't written Rust before, or are just sort of trying to learn or dabbling in Rust, and they're able to come in and make like great contributions and then, you know, they keep coming back and contributing. And so, um, that to me, um, I don't know what I expected. Like when I started, like, I don't know whether I expected that to happen or not. Um, but it has been a very cool and very rewarding thing to see as a, as like the maintainer creator of this project to see people coming in and like, not just contributing, but like they're like learning and hopefully like getting a lot out of it too. Um, and so I, I don't know if that would have happened if Rev were written in like C or C++, like maybe, um, uh, but it has definitely happened with Rust and that is very cool. Yes. Yeah, Steve Klabnik was on the podcast yeah. a few episodes ago. Yeah, listen to he, that. He, he put it in a really good way that like Rust is like a 2010s take on a systems programming language. And that I think that's that's the thing. Like our expectations of software have changed so much since the '70s, and what we expect out, out of our dev tooling has changed along with that. Like if I try to open up GCC, I'm lost. There's no there's no highlighting. There's no colors. I'm I'm a I'm a fish out of water. But with like a modern take on a tool, I feel like it's much more approachable. And Rust really fills that niche quite well. Yeah, yeah, totally. There was an era where programming was just hard. It was just accepted as this is a hard thing to do, you know, and as there weren't as many resources to learn there, the tools didn't hold your hand as much. And, and importantly, in a lot of these cases, the failures that happened, the failure modes you experienced were often at runtime, there were runtime failure modes and not compile time failure modes, because it's like the tool wasn't trying to give you so much safety, mm -hmm. which is, I think, a interesting thing of rust is like it's hard to make code compile sometimes but when you make it compile you can be guaranteed or you're reasonably certain that this is gonna work you know yeah um it's the the learning but, curve is very real though um yeah no it's it's super real <laughs> it's super real and that's why i was like i mean i don't know that no one's asking for my advice on how to learn rust but like i but like I, this is why i made this joke like when I was at my last my last job, um, I worked with this extremely talented engineer, and he um, he introduced Rust into our code base, and he was um, you know really comfortable in Rust, and I wanted to help maintain that system, and so I 
would kind of jump in and, and, and change things. But I was like, like I said, I was always trying to get in and out as quickly as possible. And so I was like, how do I just like get this to work without like really learning it? Um, and then after I left, think about it. after I left, I read the Rust book. Um, or maybe while I was still there, I may have read the Rust book, which was great. Um, and that that helped a lot. But really, it's it's quite personal, like your learning style. But for me, I just had to like <laughs> like bang my head against the wall like a lot um, and lose a whole day trying to figure out lifetimes and like I I you know there are better ways to learn than that but like that's what it took for me um and uh I guess also like building something like from scratch um where I had to like think through everything and and um you know, I had to familiarize myself with the ecosystem. Like, what do I use for um, command line argument parsing? Um, what do I use for logging? What do I use for error handling? Like, all those decisions that if you jump into an existing project, a lot of those decisions are, you know, I mean, it's a good thing, but a lot of those decisions are made for you. Um, but if you're trying to learn it all, it's kind of nice to put yourself in this position where you're like, are introducing things incrementally. So I don't know. I always kind of need to learn by like doing and making a bunch of mistakes. Um, but for me, that's what it took to um, get comfortable writing and reading Rust was just like time. Yeah. When I started Oxide, I, I knew zero Rust and I, I just had wow. to, I just had to like try, you know, it's like, oh, I got to get in and like make this API change. And it's like, all right, oof. I can kind of like pattern match my way through some of this stuff. And, you know, eventually I, I think one of the good things is about Rust is that it, it, it kind of does teach you as you go along. The, the error messages are pretty good. They're pretty easy to search for uh, and pretty like somebody who really knows Rust can can pretty quickly tell you. It's like, oh, yeah, here's here's what's happening. Yeah. Fixing it is not always straightforward. <laughs> you know, it's like sometimes it's like, well, you've written this thing in a way that like really won't work. This this won't work. But right. But those issues, those are almost, if you find yourself in that position, the thing that I have, the instinct I have learned, to, I have tried to build in myself is that you are probably thinking about the problem wrong or you're designing yeah. your solution wrong or something. You need to like step back often, um, or at least I do. And yeah. Oh, I, the other thing about Rust, um, I have like such bad Twitter brain. I can't remember if I actually tweeted this or if it's just something <laughs> that I thought about tweeting. Um, but but the thing with Rust is um, the there's so much to admire in like the tool chain um, because when I clone a Rust project, like I'm very confident that I will be able to build it and very fairly confident that I will be able to figure out like how to run it, how to run tests, how to run the linter, how to run the formatter. Like as compared to other ecosystems, like the standardization, I think that's happened there amongst other things. Like I'm just very confident when I go and clone a Rust project and um, that confidence like builds over time that you'll be able to kind of like figure it out. Um, and so there's a, um, like, I still don't, I'm, I don't think, I still don't think I really write like idiomatic rust like i think there's a lot of like idiomatic and like advanced rust that i am like not i'm not there yet and like i've worked with some people who are capable of doing that and like it's extremely impressive and like i'm not there yet but i am like comfortable and i think like getting to that is an, is um there's a lot of different levels of knowing rust yeah pulling back uh on a point that you made way earlier about like con uh, contributors when you're writing something in rust and it's like for python ecosystem JavaScript went through the same sort of thing, right? First, it was TypeScript, right? It's like, oh, if you start writing this thing in TypeScript, people aren't going to like know TypeScript and they're not going to contribute to your project. And I was like, well, that was like obviously false. Like <laughs> TypeScript is very popular now. And, and it made contributions easier in some ways because it's like, oh, well, there's types and this is extra documentation. And then, but tooling for the same thing for years, it was like, we're going to, we want to write things in the same language that we're running on or running against or whatever. So it's like contributions are easy and we paid that performance cost. Right. Um, and the caveat here is like rewinding something and rust doesn't necessarily make it performant. Uh, yes. you know, there is, there is still like ways to write performant, non-performant code. Right. So, yes, but absolutely. It, out of the box, you probably are going to get more performance. Um, and 
the thing that's like really surprising is that people are people are willing to to bridge that gap for like a good tool they'll learn what they need to learn to be able to contribute to it and i think because like the point you were just making because like rust is so standardized and you can just get in and like okay i can kind of figure out how to run tests i can kind of figure out how to do all this stuff then it makes that barrier of entry lower anyway so I think there's like a whole lot to that, both the language choice and the ecosystem it comes with. And the fact that like people just want really good tools. They don't really care what they're written in. They want them to be fast, you know, yeah, yeah. and you'll get contributors to whatever you write it in. I mean, some things are going to be reduced your subset, right? If it was like, you know, obviously if you're writing a tool in an assembly, you're going to get like very, very, very few people who are like going to get in there. But if you're doing something, you know, more mainstream than like, yeah you'll get contributors yeah i mean the the should you rewrite it in rust um like the answer to that question is you know unfortunately it, it's entirely like it depends <laughs> um like yes not everything should be written in rust um <laughs> and you know and you should not blindly take your tool and like rewrite it in rust like obviously not um but there's a lot of there's a lot of like nuance to this right there's like it's like just because your tool isn't written in rust doesn't mean you shouldn't care about performance right so like even if your tool if your tool is written in javascript like you can still like there are still ways to like make that fast and make that slow um and so you know you don't have to you don't have to rewrite it in rust to make something fast rewriting something in rust doesn't guarantee that it's going to be fast um when you do rewrite something in rust i mean the thing about people being able to contribute like that is a real cost. Like, I'm sure there are a lot of people who would, who, or I don't know. I, I, I imagine that there are people who would contribute to Ruff if it was written in Python, but can't. And so like, yeah, that's like, I'm not saying that's like not, a, that cost does not exist. Um, uh, and it is a trade-off. Like there are a lot of trade-offs to this. Um, uh, but of course it's, it, you know, it's kind of nuanced. It's not like everything should be written in Rust, nothing should be written in Rust. It's like, it, it really depends. Like, yeah, you, what is it going to buy you? Um, and um, what is the cost, right? Like there are some tools, um, you know, there's the, um, I can't remember what the name of the project is, the rewriting TypeScript in Rust. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, that's a very ambitious project. That's like super hard. Um, and like, I'm not commenting on whether they should or shouldn't do it, but like, that's a, that's a big ambitious project. That's going to take a lot of time. Um, and it, it, you know, it seems like it could have a big payoff. Um, but you know, there's a lot of evaluation that needs to go on here and, um, everyone loves a rewrite it in Rust, right? It uh, gets uh, everyone, uh, it's so cool and popular and like, um, yeah, I think it can be like really impactful, but it's not, it is not, I don't want to present it as being like quite that simple. Um, cause you know, even as someone who is rewriting a lot of stuff in Rust, I do not believe that everything should be rewritten in Rust. And, um, uh, I think it's worth I think it's worth saying that because sometimes I give people the wrong impression. Maybe, yeah. the The last episode we filmed unaired at the the moment of re this recording with Steve Kraus. Uh, yeah, he hit one of his previous companies, Zaplib, uh, was like, right. oh, let's let's make everything into Rust and run, run it through Wasm. And they had that initial thing like, oh yeah, it's going to be a lot faster. We did a few tests, but in the end, they found out, oh, it's not all that much faster. So it's like, it definitely comes down to like how you write it and if it's the right tool for the job. Yeah, 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 yeah. There are other like, um, I don't know. There are also some like technical costs um, that we pay for like writing the tool in Rust. Um, so I don't know, maybe a couple examples. Like if you write a tool in Python, like you get access to like the Python standard library and like that has like some um, I don't know if I'd call them like metaprogramming tools, but like it has, you know, a lot of built-in stuff that's helpful for writing like Python tooling. <laughs> like, I don't know, you can like detect like things that are in the standard library or not. Like th there's just a bunch of stuff that's like helpful if you're writing a Python tool that's in the Python standard library. Um, and like, we don't get access to any of that. So like when we need to um, uh, implement you know, when we need to replicate logic like that, we actually have to like rewrite that part in, in Rust too. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I guess like more trivial examples, like things we've actually rewritten are like, um, is this ident is this a valid um, like variable name? Like, is this a valid identifier? Um, 
that's not like super hard, but like it just as an example, um, you know, Python has utilities for that in the standard library. Um, and like, we don't get access to this. So like we have our own and, um, that idea kind of can, depending on what you try to do, you know, there's just things you don't have access to. Um, and so we sometimes have to like re-implement stuff like that. Um, and that's a cost. Um, the other is we, um, it's it's debatable whether this is a this is a cost, but like we don't use the C Python um, parser, so we use we use a different parser for parsing Python code that's written in Rust. Um, and well, it means that it'll have different it'll have different bugs, right? So <laughs> so like um, you might have code that um, uh, we have to spend a lot of time on like compatibility. Um, like we were we use a parser from a. Uh, a tool called Rust Python, which is, um, I mean, in some ways like more ambitious what we're doing because it's like a full, uh, it's meant to be a full Python interpreter re-implementation in Rust. Um, and so uh, it's not just the parser, it's actually the, like, the interpreter and the, you know, it's actually able to evaluate and run Python code like all in Rust. Um, and, uh, you know, we sort of pulled out the parser um, as, as a piece of that to reuse. And I, I think we were probably the first people that were using it for that purpose. Um, because most people, most people were not or whatever. Um, so we pulled out the parser and we started parsing Python code. And then because no one had used it for that purpose before, there were a lot of incompatibilities with how C Python represented source code. And so we had to, um, you know, we upstreamed a lot of improvements to try and bring those things into compatibility. Um, and it's, I mean, I think it's, I think the compatibility is very good right now, but it, but it, you know, it can be different. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, when new language features come out, we actually have to like implement those ourselves in the parser. Um, whereas, you know, if Python introduces a new language feature, uh, it gets built into C Python, like basically as part of that process. Um, so like a big limitation in rough for a long time was that we didn't support Python's um, structural pattern matching syntax, um, uh, which was introduced in 3.9, I think Python 3.9, maybe 3.10. That's, uh, that's embarrassing. I should know that it was one of those, <laughs> um, but we didn't support it. Um, and so if you tried to run rough over files that used it, it we would just throw a syntax error. Um, and we couldn't really provide you any, you know, useful analysis. Um, and that was blocking people from adopting rough for a while. Um, and uh, eventually I went in, I sort of locked myself in a room and I was like, I, I've got, I have to solve this problem because like, I just can't keep hearing about how we don't support it. Um, and also it's, uh, you know, getting in the way of a lot of users. So, um, you know, we eventually supported that, but like as new language features come out, we're going to have to, you know, keep up um, and, mm -hmm. and implement those. Um, and so, the, you know, there's a, the, the costs will be tool specific, but for us, this is just an example of, not using Python to write Python tooling does have some technical costs and maintenance costs. Yeah. C could you have like done like a Rust to Python bridge thing where you like call internal functions? I know that would be like probably the worst performance you can get, but would there have been a way to do it otherwise? Yeah. I've thought about this. I've thought about this a little bit, but it's also an area where like, um, <laughs> I sort of like, wanted to recognize some of my own constraints um, or my own inadequacies. Um, like, I think in theory, we could maybe reuse the C Python parser directly, which is written in C. Um, but I had trouble figuring out how to do that. And so I didn't. And then I use, and then I use this Rust, this Rust parser. And then um, it's, it's very performant. Um, we have... Um, you know, we're able to contribute changes and improvements to it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's a lot of like sub pieces to the parser that are like useful to be able to extract out like um, various things for like parsing strings. Python has like a lot of different ways to represent strings and like how strings get formatted. And so um, it's just useful that it's all like, it's all Rust and it's all like one system. I think, I think it is, I think it would be possible to do that, but I kind of gave up on it pretty early on because I couldn't figure out, I, it was sort of beyond me. Which is fine. Yeah. Play to your strengths, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Beyond that, too, the shuttling stuff back and forth uh, yeah. between an intermediate layer there is hard. And and with the parser written in Rust, I'm sure you get to reuse some of the types, which is, I'm sure, itself valuable. Yes. 
Yes, sorry. That's an extremely good point. Yeah, so, you have to invent all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so bringing it back to rough a little bit, uh, I personally haven't ever looked at the Python linting space. What did it look like before rough? Like, because uh, in JavaScript, it's like you have like two choices: you use ESLint or whatever the other thing is, and then uh, you, you can do linting. But it seems like in the uh, the Python space, it's a little different. Yeah, it's a little more. Um... I guess it's like a little bit more varied. Um, I don't necessarily want to say, I think fragmented has negative connotations, but I, I guess what I would say is like, um, uh, often you're using like more of a, a sort of suite of tools um, as opposed to like ESLint with a bunch of plugins. Um, uh, I guess in JavaScript, this is kind of true too, because you have like ESLint and Prettier and I'm sure there's like other cool stuff that I'm not using yet. Um, but uh, so in Python, um, for the linting space, there are a couple of linters that are really popular. Um, and also, you know, to be totally clear, like all these tools are still like way more popular than rough, like by the numbers. Um, and they are, you know, they're great tools. I have a lot of respect for them. I use them all for, I've used them myself for a long time. Um, uh, so the most, uh, I don't know what's the most popular, but very popular tool is called Flake 8. Um, and, uh, that tool actually combines like this sort of like a tree of tools here that actually bun basically bundles, um, two other tools. It's kind of like a tree of tools here. So flake eight actually bundles a tool called PyCodeStyle style and a tool called PyFlakes. And one of those focuses on style and one focuses on style lint errors and one focuses on, um, like semantic analysis. Um, so flake eight was built, um, and Flakegate had a pretty robust, has a pretty robust um, plugin system. So often people use Flakegate with a bunch of plugins. Um, and so you can have a plugin to lint your doc strings. You can have a plugin to um, add more sort of correctness and common error checks that aren't built into the linter by default. So that kind of looks like ESLint in that it's like a linter that has a plugin system and there's like a pretty big ecosystem of plugins. Um, there's also a linter called PyLint, which is uh, very popular as well. Um, that's um, PyLint does a lot of things that are almost closer to like what you would expect from a type checker. So PyLint will do like cross file analysis. Um, like it'll look at, okay, this function was defined here and called here and it has like the wrong number of arguments. Um, that's a lint error, or you have an import cycle or stuff like that. Um, so PyLint does a lot more um, like static analysis and like branch analysis. Um, and it also supports like a lot of rules. Like I, I think they have maybe like 400 rules. Um, so um, in my experience, people tended to like either use like PyLint or the sort of Flake 8 ecosystem. And then um, there's a lot of other static tooling that people would layer on top of that. There's a really, really popular code formatter called Black. It's kind of like the, for the web folks, it's kind of like prettier for Python. Um, uh, there's a there's a couple of different choices for like type checking. So um, type annotations in Python have become a lot more popular, especially over the past couple of releases. Um, and uh, a little bit like TypeScript, but sort of not. Like the annotations are part of the Python, uh, part of Python. They're part of the syntax. They're part of the standard Python syntax but the language doesn't actually enforce them. Um, th there's a spec and third-party tools implement that, that spec to look at the annotations and enforce them. Um, and so there's like, there's sort of like an ecosystem of type checkers, similar to how in the web you have like um, a couple of different package managers. You have like NPM and Yarn and PNPM and Bun and whatever else. Here you have like a couple of different tools that can all do type checking and some people use one, some people use another. Um, so, you know, pretty standard stack would be like one of those linters, um, formatter is very, very popular. Um, one of the type checkers, and then you might layer on some other tools too, um, that do other sort of ad hoc analysis. I hadn't heard about flake eight in a long time. Uh, yeah, I, I, I started in C and C plus plus and went to Python after that and was using flake way back then. Yeah. 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 So yeah. So where did you start with building rough? Like, did you have an AST to choose from? Uh, did you build out your own AST? Did you fork other projects? I think I, I read in the docs that you like heavily, like translated some code from like Flake 8 or something. So like, where did you start with rough? 
Yeah. So, um, like I said, when I started building rough, um, I had never really built anything like it before. So I spent a lot of time reading code. Um, the, uh, the starting point was like, I need to find a way to like parse Python source code and like get an, get an AST that I can traverse and, and analyze. Um, and so, uh, I pretty quickly settled on using Rust Python for that. And um, Rust Python actually, their AST schema is generated from um, effectively from the Python standard definitions. So um, the, the 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 actual definitions and the structure of the AST is very is very similar, if not identical, to like what C Python uses. Um, and uh, what I did from there was I I basically just read like all the PyFlakes and other like source code to understand like how different tools like track variable definitions, how they track bindings, um, uh, um, what limitations they have, like like how scoping works, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think one of the things that rough was kind of, sometimes I use this phrase like, optimized for adoption. Um, like, I think we made a couple of decisions that really helped with um, getting, uh, facilitating adoption and like making it easy for people to, relatively easy, I hope, for people to adopt. Um, one of those was that from the start, we really tried to be drop-in compatible with a bunch of existing tools. Um, and uh, that's great because it means that if people are using those existing tools, they can move over to rough um, and ideally their code, if their code was passing before it's passing now. Um, so, uh, that was really important. Um, the other is that we, um, we started to like bundle more and more tools. And this was like almost something that happened by accident, but is now like, in my opinion, a very core part of uh, a really a core benefit of Rough, um, which is we we now bundle a lot of tools. Um, and when I say it happened by accident, it's because it's pretty hard to write a plugin system in Rust. And so um, originally I was like, oh, we're never going to be able to implement all these plugins that people need. Um, we need like a plugin system. And um, I couldn't really come up with like a good like sort of best practice way to do that. And so what I started doing was I started just implementing the plugins in Rough directly. And so I just looked at what are the most popular Flakegate plugins? And I looked at a bunch of projects and I said, well, if this project wanted to adopt Rough, like what plugins would it need us to implement? And I like literally just kind of went down the list and like worked through them. Um, and we implemented, uh, you know, a bunch of the most popular ones and, and with each plugin we implemented, we would sort of unblock people from being able to adopt Rough. Um, and the, the interesting thing is like, you know, we talked a little bit about like the importance of performant tools, um, like performant developer tools, fast feedback loops. Um, I'm a big, big believer in that. Um, but the interesting thing is that there are a lot of people who adopt Rough and like speed is actually not like the primary reason that they do it, um, which is, a little bit surprising because it's kind of the flagship. It's like it's like the flagship feature. It's like oh, it's super fast. Um, and it is. It's very fast. Um, but uh, there are other benefits, and one of those is like it can really simplify your dependency chain. So like um, when people move to rough, like they're sometimes replacing like like ten or more dependencies with a single tool, um, and. Uh, I mean, that's cool. You get a bunch of red in your dependency <laughs> diff or whatever, which is fine. But like really the benefit is it's like, it's like one tool, one invocation, one configuration that can replace a bunch of tools. And, and it's not just like Flake 8 with plugins. We also, for example, implement an import sorter, which in Python is a totally separate tool. Um, and in rough, that's just a lint rule that like your imports need to be sorted. And we implement the, you know, almost the exact same behavior as that existing tool. So people can pull out their linter, their import sorter, a bunch of their pre-commit hooks and replace them with like one thing, like one CLI, one invocation, one configuration. Um, and so 
that I think helped a lot. It, it, it created like another like very compelling reason to like consider this tool that like wasn't just performance. Um, the third, I think probably was the auto fix behavior. Um, Flakegate and Pylint do not support auto fixing. Um, and there are separate tools that kind of like use, they kind of like leverage Flakegate to do some auto fixing. Um, but we just, we built that into the linter like pretty early on. Um, and uh, over time we've been able to like expand the scope of the kinds of things we can fix. So um, a lot of people are attracted. Uh, when I talk about like optimizing for adoption, it's really about like dropping compatibility, like super important. We're going to use like very, like very similar APIs. Um, even if, even if we would make slightly different decisions, we're not going to, because it's actually really helpful for people. Um, uh, and then just having like a bunch of ideally like good reasons to want to use the tool, which are like, it's fast, it's, um, sort of unified, like it lets you like simplify your, your tool chain, your dependencies. Um, and it's hopefully like more helpful and like faster to use like auto fixing and other, other features like that. Okay. Before we move on to the future, I have one question to ask about rough. What about plugins? You've built everything in so far. Uh, a big part of my experience with linters has always been plugins. So do you plan to support them? Or yeah. So plugins, like it was, um, yeah, plugins are tricky. So plugins, they were, I mean, they came up like basically immediately um, as soon as we released it. And there's a very old issue where a lot of discussion about plugins has happened. Um, I I would like to support plugins. Yes, how we support them. And I, I, I'd like to support plugins. I plan to support plugins, but I will not promise to do so on any timeline because <laughs> um, how we plan to do it, um, there are a lot of different approaches we could take and it kind of depends on like what you what you want out of a plugin um like should a plugin be able to do like arbitrary things like um maybe but like i'm very interested it's a little bit of a cop-out but i'm very interested in an idea uh, or in a world in which plugins can be expressed declaratively without like writing code um there's a tool called ast grep um, which is pretty cool. And it basically lets you write um, like pattern matching expressions over ASTs. It's based on tree sitter. Um, and um, I was very interested in actually having rough like support that. So like instead of writing Rust or Python code to write your plugins, maybe you could write your plugins in with some sort of DSL. Um, I am still interested in that idea. Like I think a lot of, I actually think a lot of the reasons that people need their own plugins fit into that paradigm. Um, it's like, you wanna make sure that people don't call a certain API or that they don't call, import something before something else. Like like typically there are rules that are kind of, this isn't the only use case for plugins, but like in my experience, when we wrote our own custom rules at a company, it was always about like propriet, pro proprietary things about the code base, like, like relationships that need to be enforced or like methods that shouldn't be called. And so I, that would be the dream for me would be to find some way to let people author like rules and plugins that doesn't require writing rust or python code um and then that that becomes like pretty easy um the thing that becomes much harder is if you want to let people like write like their own rust or python uh plugins i think there are ways we could support that um there's a little bit of a problem which is when you which i'll speak candidly about which is when you when performance is a feature, it limits some of the things you can offer. So if we, if performance is a feature, but plugins are very flexible and people can do whatever they want with plugins, um, there are ways for people's experience with the tool to be very slow. Uh, if, if the plugins are slow, but also if the things the plugins do are slow. Um, and so um, I try to be mindful of that a little bit. Like I don't really want to, I don't want to come up with a plugin design that is like inherently slow. And I don't necessarily want to encourage plugins that are really slow. Um, so we'll see, I do plan to support it, but it's, there's like actually a pretty big design space of things we could do. And, um, it's not something that I'm working on right now. Disappointing answer. <laughs> no, that was, that, no, that was a great, great answer. Cool. Cool. Uh, all right. Well, let's dig into it. 
before we switch over to tooltips, uh, we always like to uh, ask some folks questions about their thoughts about the future or like what their plans are. Uh, so one of the things that you shared with us privately is that you are uh, going to start a company around this sort of dev tooling that you're working on. Uh, and we'd love to hear more about that. What are your plans? Uh, what is this company and what do you plan on doing with it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, the company is called Astral. Um, and, uh, the goal of the company is really to like, keep doing what we've been doing with rough. So like, uh, build more, hopefully great Python tooling, um, uh, by leveraging, uh, rust and building really high performance stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I think like being able to work on this stuff full time was really important um, to the success that we've had thus far. Um, like I was able to, uh, be really responsive to people. Um, we were able to build really fast. We were able to, um, address issues really quickly, ship a lot. And like, I want to keep that energy up and expand the scope of like the problems we're able to solve. And so the company exists to accomplish that goal, which is we're going to build more tooling in the rough model and uh and build out rough um so a high performance uh python tooling um more static tooling especially um but also branching into uh potentially other areas that aren't quite uh as much of a straight shot from what russ rough does today so like what are the first types of tools that are like in your sites would like uh, uh auto formatter i feel like that's the first one test runner yes. bundler where, where, where yeah auto formatter so like um, hmm. I'm always very hesitant to talk about this stuff, like even not, not, not the company, but like things we might do. Um, and, and this is true even before like announcing the company, because I, I like to, I like to be very open about like what I want to do and like sort of like the scope of like the work and, you know, the potential ambition. But I also try to be really mindful about like promising things that take time to do. And so that can be a very fine line to walk um, because uh, once you say you're going to do things, it creates expectations. But if you don't say you're going to do things then you're kind of not being open and honest. So, um, you know, for me, like the dream way that rough evolves is um, it continues to grow as like a static analysis tool chain. So we have the linter, uh, the formatter, and ideally also like the type checker. Um, and I would love to do all of those things. And, uh, I don't, this is where I have to be really careful. Cause like, we're not working on a type checker right now. And like, I don't even know if we will, cause I actually think there are a lot of good reasons not to do it, but I'll just be open and honest and say like, that would be a really cool combination of tools because it, and by cool, I really mean like powerful and helpful for users. Um, and so, you know, the, the reason that that's so interesting to me is like, they're all very complimentary. Um, and so uh, it's similar to the vision that um, like Rome had, which is if you, if we're building infrastructure for a linter, um, there's a lot of common infrastructure that would be useful for like a formatter and for a type checker. And it's not just the infrastructure layer that would make all those things better. The tools themselves could also be better. So like in rough, we often have this problem where like, we want to know the type of a variable. Like we have rules that only apply to pandas data frames, or we have rules that only apply to dictionaries. And we can only enforce those in like very conservative contexts because we can't actually do type inference. So we can't actually know if a variable is a data frame or a dictionary. So if you had a unified like linter that had access to type inference and type information, like you could do a lot of really powerful stuff that like neither tool does today. Um, it's similar with the formatter. Um, you know, the linter enforces like style rules, but like a lot of those can be auto fixed by a formatter. Um, and when we do uh, implement auto fixes and code changes, we often output unformatted code. And so imagine if the linter had access to the formatter, had access to the type checker. So um, the, the sort of dream is like, you build all those things in a very unified way. Um, and they're super fast and um, better as one than like any of the tools would be individually. Um, there's a bunch of other things I'm, I'll admit that I'm also interested in, like that are in a similar, um, like design space. Um, 
So, but they're maybe like viewed as slightly more like sub problems, like, um, like doc string parsing, like documentation, um, like extracting doc strings and like create and like validating doc strings. Um, but again, to me, that's kind of like in a similar school of static tooling. Um, so, uh, I really want to like push on the things that I think make rough good and that people like about rough, which is like. It, it's high performance. Um, it's it feels like integrated and unified. Um, it's highly compatible with like a lot of your existing tools. That's like a really important piece here. Um, and just like keep pushing on that and like bring in more resources and like more more like people to help us make that possible. Yeah, when you were describing all of this and when I was doing my research, like Rome came to mind so much because like the value prop behind Rome was like, we have all these tools, they do all this parsing, all that parsing's different, none of it's shared. And like the start of rough is very the same, much the same. It's like, oh, we have 10 tools. Oh, they're all parsing different things. You put it together, it's magically faster. And then we can layer on even more, uh, even better developer experiences on top of that. Yes. And it's interesting because rough actually like, has already kind of it's already kind of done this because um if you look at what rough replaces or can replace today you have a bunch of different tools that were all doing their own like parsing and ast traversal and like um like the doc string linter had its own parsing logic um and the import sorter had its own like parsing logic and the linter had its own parsing logic and like now we just have like one system and um there's like this weirdly counterintuitive thing where like as the system does more, it, it kind of um, it actually becomes like easier to maintain and build more stuff on top of it. Um, like if you built a bunch of disparate tools that all need to analyze um, that all need to analyze some code, like they need to implement a lot of the same things like a bunch of times. <laughs> and with Ralph, it's like you know if we want to pull in a new piece of functionality or a new a new behavior. Um, it's like writing a function in a module and then we get all this infrastructure. Um, and when we go to implement that function, we probably already have like a lot of logic and helpers that have been used for other rules or we're already tracking a lot of the semantic information that you would need. And so like the whole thing kind of, there's a little bit of like, I hope, and I think like a snowball effect with like the way that the tools compound. Um, and uh, my hope is that we can just keep building stuff that's like really impactful and that people that like really resonates with people. Like that's like the whole joy. I mean, I like working on these problems, but like rough has been like such a rewarding thing to work on because honestly it like really resonates with people and people are like really happy when they use it and they like, they have a really positive response to it. And like, to me that suggests that there's an opportunity to just like do more of that. Like, I, like really the, the purpose of starting a company here is just to like, do more of that and like build more unified tooling um, and try to like push Python forward by like leveraging Rust, like building unified high performance tooling um, and just like making everyone's lives like a little bit easier. Love the vision. That's, that's why we started this whole thing. It's like, you know, building tools makes the whole ecosystem better. And it's like, yeah, that's great. I think building uh, tools is amazing. I was like, yeah. It's it's funny because I think, um, you know, I said at the start, um, when I left Spring, my, my last job, I was like, I don't really know what I want to work on. And like, I could work on a bunch of different things, but I just kept coming back to tooling because I find it to be like the most gratifying thing to work on. Like enabling, like really a lot of my last job was actually, I didn't really like think about it this way at the time, but it was building like developer tools. Like I was building tools to enable other people to do great work. Like I was building like infrastructure and tooling. And like that to me is like the most rewarding thing. Um, and like sure. seeing all the projects that like Ruff is already supporting, it's like so cool to me, honestly. The and big like ones too. very, very like, it is like such a gratifying thing for me to just see people's response to it and like see how it's, um, making people more efficient. And like, uh, you know, if we could make the Python ecosystem like 1% more efficient, like in aggregate, like think about like the compounding that happens there. Like yeah. everyone's getting more done and everyone's more efficient. And you know, depending on how how arrogant I wanna be, I'll say we'll do more than 1%. But I, you know, like 1% would be like, that'd be a great, that's like a, yeah. that's like a huge lift for like the world. So I know it's a little like, 
melodramatic, but um, I really do like like working on tools. And like the point of this is to like help people work faster uh, and and be less. Um, I don't know. Get to like good tools. Get out of the way. I want to like get tools out of people's way and like let them ship stuff. And so that's that's really the point here. Yeah. Okay, with that, let's move on to tool tips. That's it for the free version of the episode. If you want to hear the full thing, you'll have to subscribe. Cool. Well, that wraps it up for tool tips. Um, thanks for coming on, Charlie. This was a, a really fun dive into all things Rust and uh, Python linting. I, I really enjoyed your perspective on becoming an open source maintainer over, overnight and how you've dealt with it. it. It was a lot of fun to talk to you. <laughs> Thanks so much. This was, um, I mean, I love talking about this stuff, so this was a blast for me. Um, and, uh, yeah, appreciate you having me on and, uh, look forward to, uh, watching myself back, I guess. <laughs> Seeing all the editing magic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Charlie. Absolute, absolute pleasure. Uh, so relevant given how much rust that I find myself writing these days and I can hear a lot of my own experience and some of the story that you've told. So, uh, this is a huge pleasure. Nice. That's really cool to hear. Appreciate it.